you would, turn in the Bible back to 1 Peter chapter 3. It's not where we were last Sunday because we took a break from it. It's where we were the week before that, <clears throat> two weeks ago. Now we're back at 1 Peter chapter 3. If you didn't bring a Bible today, that's okay. We have those black pew Bibles there in front of you. It's page uh, 1115, 1115, if you're using a pew Bible, 1 Peter chapter 3. We want you to be there. Yesterday was such a nice day. Man, it was a nice day. The weather was great. It was busy. It seemed like spring. It wasn't too hot. It wasn't too cool. It was nice. I don't at all intend to say there that everybody had a good day. We know better than that. This is too many people to assume everybody had a good day. I know some of you may have had a bad day yesterday, so we don't, we don't at all take for granted that you should have had a good day. I just mean that, today, that yesterday was a nice day. The weather was nice. It was a busy day. And it was the day of the Kentucky Derby. And anybody who lives in and around Kentucky or even Louisville knows that that, that is a special day. Uh, it really is neat to live here uh, where the Derby is and to have a holiday that is the Kentucky Derby. You know, school closes the day before the Kentucky Derby, uh, what we know as Oaks Day. But it really is a neat feeling. I'm not from here. I wasn't born and raised here. And it wasn't until I moved here that I got the the full effect of it, uh, what is the Derby and the Kentucky Derby Festival and beginning with Thunder and then taking a couple weeks to lead up to it. It's really neat and I, I love it. And I, just, uh, I, I just wanted to mention, it has nothing to do with my sermon, uh, I just wanted to mention that it's, it's special to live in Louisville during, during Derby season and during Derby Day. It really, really is nice. Um, and yesterday was a great day. Um... Many were calling it the best sports day ever. I found that humorous because there was no football yesterday. <laughs> but that's all right with me. Um, but I mean this, and I think it may have been best sports day ever. I mean, it was great. And I, I'll be honest, I watched the Kentucky Derby. I watched Game 7 of Spurs Clippers. And then I uh, watched the fight last night. I watched all of those. And... Uh, enjoyed every bit of it except for the fight. A little bit boring to me. I'm not big into that, but y'all don't care. Um, it was a great day. But I mean this with my whole heart. I think today's better. I mean that with my whole heart. Uh, I love sports. I stayed up, even as the preacher, till 1 o'clock last night to see that. I stayed up after the fight to watch what the commentators were going to say on Sports Center about that. Uh, I, that's how much I like, I like sports. Um... But I think today's better. I really do. I think the best sports day ever takes a backseat to every Sunday ever. Amen. I mean that wholeheartedly. Every single Sunday that we celebrate that Jesus Christ is risen from the grave is better than any Monday through Saturday. And I put Monday through Saturdays up there, especially if I was the one winning a championship, or especially if it was the, the day that my children were born, or, or some of these huge days. But Sundays are... are in and of themselves, all together, something different. Y'all, Sunday is the day that you and I have set everything aside for this. We have come here to say, sin has been defeated. Hallelujah, what a Savior. We have come here to say, God, do a mighty work inside of me to forgive me of my sins and to set my hope, my eternal hope on you. And confirm that in me every day, every Sunday, through the preaching of the Word. 
I'm here today totally desperate for God to awaken my soul to believe this. That's so much better than any Saturday. So yes, I think yesterday may have been best day ever for Mondays through Saturdays. But it's not better than today. And today we get to look at a subject that we need to look at. A subject that I'm scared to preach, but I know God would have us to. We're going to look today at what it means to be a husband. You remember two weeks ago I preached on wives. Really what I'm preaching on is keeping your conduct right for the glory of God in marriage. That's what the passage is about. But I realized as I was stepping into the pulpit, I hadn't thought about this until I stepped into the pulpit last time, two weeks ago, that in the seven verses that are about this, six are directed toward women and one are directed toward men. And I'm smarter than that than to to go heavy on women and then just add on something at the end toward men. So I changed it right there and preached the one to wives two weeks ago. And then I promised y'all that the next one was going to be to husbands and I forgot we had deacon ordination. That's what we did last Sunday. And so now I'm preaching to husbands and I hope that you came today ready for that. It is just one verse, verse 7. Before I start with verse 7 of 1 Peter chapter 3, page 1115 in the Pew Bible, i got to say what I said again, that I know, and I want you all to hear it, be reminded, I'm not the, the guy uh, that should be preaching this because I'm so good at being a husband. I am the guy that should be preaching this to you all because I am God's called pastor for you all. But I'm not the guy that should be preaching it to you all because I'm such a good husband. Matter of fact, it's quite the opposite. And and first and foremost, I'm preaching this to me. And I hope that y'all get something out of a sermon that's to me. But I tell you what, there's a need for us too. There is a need for God's church to powerfully, radically change the way we are with marriage. First Peter is a book written to persecuted Christians about the need to persevere. First Peter is a book to Christians who are being persecuted, much of like what you might be seeing on the news now that's happening in other parts of the world toward believers in Jesus. They are being persecuted. They are being beaten. They are being killed. They are being attacked. And yet they're believers in Jesus. And Peter says to them, don't give up. Don't stop. Keep believing. Keep pressing on. Keep working so hard to live like you are believing in Jesus. Like you are holding on to the anchor. Like you are standing on a foundation. Like you are in the hand of God. Don't quit. And he puts all of this emphasis on them continuing to live rightly when it is very hard to live rightly. He has this whole section that I'm preaching on on get your conduct right. Even in the midst of the persecution and the evil against you, even in the middle of that, don't stop living life for God. Keep your eyes on Him. Stay on the straight and narrow. Hate your sins. Live repentant. Be humble. When they do evil against you, he says, in chapter 2, verse 12, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. 
We must live like we know that God Almighty is the judge and that to not be forgiven of your sins and to face the judge is a horrible, dangerous, terrifying thing. And nobody should have to do that. And we don't want anybody to do that. We want them to know about the free grace and the forgiveness of sins that it comes through Jesus. And the way we live, you should know this, I think you do, speaks volumes to whether they will believe that or not. And so guess what is a huge issue in your conduct in the world for the glory of God, our marriages. And it seems that the church in America is all worked up now because marriage has come under fire. The Supreme Court is trying to decide what they think marriage is. Everybody's discussing what really is a marriage. And Christians seem to be getting worked up about what other people might say it is. And that is a big deal. But I think it might be a bigger deal that you would be more worked up over your own marriage. Because as I see it in the Scriptures, the lost world out there doesn't care at all about what your overall view is about somebody else's marriage as much as what they see happening in your marriage. This is what Peter is writing about. He devotes a big chunk of this short book. There are only five chapters. In my Bible, it's only two and a half pages for the whole book. And yet marriage is a big deal. We've already dealt with the women and the wives. So today we're going to speak to the men, husbands. And if I get a little bit strong here today, it's not because I'm a better husband than you, I promise. It's because God tells us what we're supposed to be like. And also, you know, my dad was here last week, and my dad's one of those guys who doesn't know how to teach gently, he doesn't know how to uh, love softly, he doesn't know how to instruct kindly. If he's telling you what to do or how to change, it's a blow-your-head-off type of tell you how to change. But since there was love there, it didn't kill me. So today, I hope that we will be man enough, if you will, to hear what God says to husbands. Read with me in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. That's all he says there to husbands, and in verse 80 switches over to move to unity, goes in a different direction. To help us understand verse 7 a little bit better, let's now read 1 through 7. So we hear what he says to the wives and then to the men. Notice that at verse 7 he says likewise, and at verse 1 he says likewise. The reason why is because going all the way back up to chapter 2, verse 12, which I've already read, he is talking to them about keeping their conduct right for the glory of God as other people see our conduct, that they would glorify God. And so when he talks to uh, human institutions 
or when he talks to servants in the house, or when he talks to masters, or wives, or husbands, he's saying the same thing. Live in such a way that people will see your hope is in God. Live in such a way that God is glorified. Live in such a way that people think, what is the difference in their lives? And they will have no other answer than the hope of God. So let's read at chapter 3, verse 1 to put all of this together. Likewise, husbands, be subject to your own... Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord... And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Peter wants us to see that it takes two to make a strong marriage. Peter wants us to see that God certainly speaks to the woman living to the glory of God and speaks to the man living to the glory of God. Peter is not singled out one or the other. Peter is asking all of those who hope in Christ to live in a way that they are so focused on God that their marriage would show that they have their hope in God. He addresses the wives and he addresses the husbands. When he addresses the husbands here, Seems to be four things that he's saying. You can see the understanding, the honor to the woman, uh, the heirs, and then the prayers. And I want to speak to all four of those. If you do bullet points or you take notes, we have the understanding, the honor, the heirs, and the prayers. And I just want to talk about those. The first thing that he says, which is just humorous and very convicting, is to live in an understanding way with her. And as soon as I read that and started praying about it, I was reminded of Everybody Loves Raymond, the TV show, where there's never any understanding in a marriage. Understanding a woman is the hardest thing on the planet to do. It really is. Even when you try to do the right thing, you didn't do it with the right motive. And it's the motive that makes all the difference. Well, it's fitting that God would tell us to do the hardest thing that is to do. Because everything that is to be in the name of Jesus is not to be done in our own strength. It is to be done through the strength of the Holy Spirit and the power of God. If you think that you can have a marriage that reflects what marriage is supposed to on your own strength, then you have too small of a view of marriage. Marriage for the glory of God takes husbands that understand their wives. And husbands that understand their wives undoubtedly takes the power of the Holy Spirit working inside of them. That's what he says to do. Understand. And it is so easy to say, I don't get it. 
I don't understand her. She ain't right. It is. But we must understand that God is asking us to do something that is bigger and greater than ourselves. This word understanding is a good one in the Bible that you need to know anyway. The Bible teaches that nobody understands God. The Psalms tell us this, and then Romans 3 quotes it again. There's nobody good, there's nobody righteous, there's nobody who seeks after God, not even one. Our sinfulness is to such depths that it says, no one understands God. You don't understand how God wants you to be in marriage. I'm not saying there aren't good marriages out there. Matter of fact, there are a lot of good, strong marriages out there. I'm saying they're just falling a little bit short of what God intends them to be. God doesn't want our marriages to just be good marriages. He wants our marriages to say, God is glorious. God is awesome. And the Bible teaches us that no one understands this in our sinfulness. My favorite passage in all of Scripture is Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24. And here's what it says. It says, let not the wise man boast of his wisdom, and let not, let not the rich man boast of his riches, and let not the strong man boast of his strength, but let the person that boasts boast about this, that he knows me and he understands me. He uses the word understanding there. He doesn't say that he believes in me. God doesn't want us to boast that we believe. If you know God, you believe. If you've seen God, you believe. If God has shown Himself to you through the Scriptures, you believe. Nobody comes to God and, and understands and, and, then, and then doesn't believe. He's too good to reject. His grace is indeed irresistible. He wants us to understand Him. He wants us to understand why life makes sense. He wants us to get it with our coming and our going and our sitting and our standing. He wants us to talk about Him and be about Him everywhere we go. Understanding is very, very important to God. Psalm 119.34, Psalm 119.73, the psalmist cries out, Father, give me understanding. I need to understand what life's all about. Why do I work so much? Why are my emotions so heavy? Why am I crying right now? Why am I hurting? Why is there a struggle? Why so much hardship? Why do bad things happen to good people? Why did you give me such blessing? We're asking why all the time to everything in life, the highs and the lows. We're asking why to God in everything. And the reason why you ask why is because you don't understand we need to understand. At the very core of what it means to be a believer in Jesus is to have understanding about life and godliness. But when it comes to our marriages, we need understanding from God. And so, when we hear of 1 Peter chapter 3, we are reminded, I am, of the, the, the great passages in Scripture that tell us what marriage is about. The most popular one, Ephesians 5. I'll read Ephesians 5 in a second, but first I want to share with you what one pastor says. He says, if you want to understand, there's our word, God's meaning for marriage, you have to grasp that we are dealing with a copy and an original. Listen to this. A metaphor and a reality. A parable and a truth. And the original, the reality, the truth, is God's marriage to His people. If you're here today and you're thinking, I want to get married, or I want to be a better husband, or, or I want to fall in love one day, or I'm just curious about marriage, or, or I want to be the best husband I can possibly, possibly be, listen, this is important stuff. Marriage, according to God, is an example of God's marriage to His people. Or rather, Christ's marriage to His church. 
While the copy, the metaphor, the parable is a husband's marriage to his wife, Jeffrey Bromley says, as God made man in his own image, so he made earthly marriage in the image of his own eternal marriage with his people. Every single marriage on earth is to be a picture, a copy, an example, if you will, to the world of God's marriage to his people. I hope you understand God's marriage to his people. God's marriage to his people is that Christ is the groom and that the church is the bride. The way that Christ is to His church is the ultimate example of what a husband should be like. This is what Ephesians 5 is about. You don't have to turn there, but just listen. It says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her. This is Paul writing to the church about how husbands should be. That He might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word, so that He might present the church to Himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. That she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of His body. Listen, listen. He's quoting Genesis 1. Therefore... A man shall, Genesis 2, I'm sorry. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. We believe that marriage is rooted and grounded in creation when God made man and woman to be for each other, and the two leave their parents, unite together, and become one together. Right after that, in verse 32, Paul says, This mystery is profound. This is complicated. This is a big deal. It's mysterious, he says. And then he clarifies what is mysterious. He says, and I am saying that it refers to Jesus Christ and the church. If we want understanding on God's marriage, we don't look to good marriages, for those are helpful, but we look to God's marriage to His people. A covenant relationship that He will not break. You remember when Jesus taught us that what God has joined together, let no man separate? It's because what God has joined together through the blood of Christ, it is impossible to separate. If you are in Christ, you are in Christ. And you are safe. And no one can snatch you out of the Father's hand. If Jesus has made you His wife, if Jesus has made you His bride, you are certainly His. And this is the model for what marriage is to be like. Our marriages are to be like God's marriage to us through Christ, the church and Jesus. Commentator goes on to say, one of the things to learn from this mystery is the roles of husband and wife in marriage. One of Paul's points in this passage is that the roles of husband and wife in marriage are not arbitrarily assigned and they are not reversible without obscuring God's purpose for marriage. The roles of husband and wife are rooted in the distinctive roles of Christ and His church. God means by marriage to say something about His Son and His church by the way husbands and wives relate to each other. Let me say that last sentence again. This is what will bother many of us. We want to be a witness to Christ uh, stepping out of our marriage. You and I are often not comfortable with saying that your marriage tells me more about Christ than everything that you say or do. Everything that I know about you in and of yourself is not as important as what I'm seeing when I look at your marriage. 
It doesn't matter to me as much as you might tell me about Jesus, as much as you might show me in the Scriptures, or as much as you might do this or that. Your marriage tells me as much as I need to know about what God is like. It's what we're saying that the outside world says to us. We must understand the gravity of marriage from God according to the Scriptures. Listen to this last sentence again. God means by marriage to say something about His Son and His church by the way husbands and wives relate to each other. And we all know, you don't need me to say it, that the American church over and over again has done a very poor job of representing marriage. Very poor job of representing marriage. And yet we're all worked up over how much the church is declining. Churches are dying right and left. Churches are closing. Churches are shrinking. We're not reaching people. We hear it all the time. And what's the excuse that we hear all the time? That it's the young people. The young people these days are so hard-headed. Well, I don't know if it is the young people's fault, but I think First Baptist Fairdale is seeing that if you spend some time with some young people and you preach the Word of God to them, that God works in young people's lives. I don't think it is the young people. I think it's that the representation that the married people or, or the not married people are giving to the young people says to me, God's not that powerful if that's the way your marriage is. Let's be truthful about it. When a husband doesn't want to be a husband the way God says to be a husband, when a husband can complain about his wife, when a husband doesn't want to lead his wife, when a husband doesn't want to understand his wife, then it, the Scriptures seem to be void. Because God understands His people, He became just like us. God understands His people, He came and walked among our streets and lived among us and tabernacled among us and dwelled among us. He's been tempted in every single way you've ever been tempted. Jesus is the most understanding husband you'll ever find. He knows His wife. He understands His wife. He can deal with His wife. He cried with His wife. He cried for His wife. He laid Himself down for His wife. He did things He didn't want to do for His wife. He hated waiting on His wife. He loved and died for His wife. He understands His wife so much. And if you want to be a witness to the world, understand Understand your wife. Give up everything else. Stop the man time, the man cave. Makes me sick how much we want to talk about man cave these days. Get over that. Watch TV with your wife. Spend time with your wife. Want to do things with your wife. Find a way to understand her. And if you're not cool to everybody else in the world, who cares? You look like God. Oh, that there would be men who say, you might not think I'm the coolest guy around. But you're going to see what God's like when it comes to a woman. Husbands that understand. Y'all don't need me to give examples. Everybody in the room knows people who are married who never talk. Never talk. Everybody in the room knows people who are married that don't even sleep in the same bed together. Everybody in the room knows somebody that's in that category. What is that? And for this sermon today, it's not the woman's fault. And even if it was the woman's fault, the Bible tells us husbands to get over that. You've been wrong somewhere else before. You got somebody wrong at work, you got to overcome that. You got to be the bigger person. I've got to teach my two year old how to be the bigger person. Two wrongs don't make a right. If she happens to be the one that's wrong, and I highly doubt that, but if she does happen to be the one that's wrong, the husband's got to be the bigger person and become the man, the leader, make this happen. Understand. Cancel all the other plans to get there. Cancel, cancel, cancel. I need to understand her. 
This word understanding is powerful. Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. And it is to the glory of God when people can look at married people and say, wow, they like each other. They like being around each other. They love each other. They're best friends. He cares about her. He loves her. When a husband understands his wife and understands the calling to be a husband to her, the glory of God is seen and the witness of Christians is bright. Secondly, and here's where it gets very controversial, is honor to the weaker. As we are living in an understanding way with her, we are to show honor to her as the weaker vessel. Husbands should be people who want to honor their wives. And they ought to honor her knowing that she is the weaker vessel. Now let me say that this does not mean that intellectually or personality-wise or certainly not spiritually that the woman is weaker. Not at all. This is simply a statement that, that physically, generally speaking, the woman is the weaker. I hope nobody is too overly bothered by that. This is intended to be a compliment. This is not at all to be an insult. I realize that many of you women are tough. You could probably all beat me up. I'm not trying to insult anybody. God is not trying to insult anybody. He is trying to cre- create men who want to be husbands. Husbands that will love and nourish and take care of their lady. That's my girl. That type of stuff. I read a story a couple years ago about a preacher, a long time ago though, who his wife was in a restaurant just getting a drink and he was outside. And I guess she went to the bar to get a drink and the man there started hollering at her and whistling at her and saying things that men shouldn't say to women, like trying to get her. Maybe it works in a bar, but it doesn't work with somebody that's not at a bar, I guess. I don't know. And she ignored him. And so when she ignored him and walked out, he kind of spit at her. She got back out to her car. She told her husband. And her husband's a big dude, about 6'3", 250. He went back in that bar. Said, sir, you're going to come back out here. You can beat me up if you want to. Or I can beat you up if you want to. But we need to understand you don't talk to women like that. Literally brought the guy out of the bar and made him apologize to his wife. Now, I'm not sure if you're able to do that. You might not be one of those big guys that can enforce that. I probably would have just drove off. <laughs> but I love the heart behind a man that says, that's not how you treat a woman. John MacArthur says, while she is fully equal in Christ and not inferior spiritually because she is a woman, she is physically weaker and in need of protection, provision, and strength from her husband. A woman wants there to be a man in her life that will protect, provide, and be strong for her. It should not be the case If you're laying in bed at 2 a.m. and somebody's busting down the front door and the robber has come, that the the man pulls the covers over his head and says, Honey, go get them. 
shouldn't be the case. This is what God is saying to us. As the weaker vessel, honor her. So live that she's always taken care of. My dad's one of those men that worked, worked, worked. You've heard me say that if you come to church here a lot. I mean, 40 years of 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. every single day. Don't even take his vacations. Workaholic in the truest sense of a workaholic. I used to love it when my mom would get a flat tire broken down. Because he was, he was under such tension that she'd call him. I'm broke down. I'm in the middle of work, babe, I can't. But you know what he'd do? He'd leave. And he'd get there. And my mom can change a tire again. I'm not trying to say you ladies can't change tires. I know you can. But my dad would go and he would find her in a hurry. And he'd make sure she's taken care of. He didn't like the idea of her being on the side of the road with cars zooming by and just all the things that could happen. He wanted to make sure she was honored in that situation. He didn't like the idea of perhaps some dangerous guy pulling over trying to pick her up and fix her tire and take her home type of thing. I want to be there with her, protect her, and honor her. A couple years ago, I was waiting tables at Bonefish Grill. That's what I did when I was in school over here on Hurstbourne Parkway. You may have heard of Bob Russell before. He was the great pastor of Southeast Christian Church. He started pastoring that church when it was a small church, really, Southeast Christian. Now they average about 30,000 every Sunday. It's the biggest church this side of the Mississippi River. It is outstanding just driving down Blankenbaker Parkway seeing that place. Their gymnasium is about as big as Fairdale. It's an awesome, awesome, huge church. It's a good church. Bob Russell was the pastor that was influential in the leading of that during all of it. One time I was waiting tables at the restaurant. I wasn't waiting on him, but I was in the ministry uh, or preparing for ministry. And so somebody comes over and says, do you know who Bob Russell is? I said, no, I've never even heard of him. And they said, well, that's him. He's the pastor of Southeast Christian Church. He's sitting right over there at that table. I said, oh, okay. So I thought, i got to go meet him. I walked over there. I said, excuse me, sir, are you Bob Russell? He, he said, yes, I am. I said, well, you don't know me, but my name's Josh, and I'm, I'm here going to the seminary. I'm trying to prepare for ministry. I just wanted to meet you. He said, Josh, can I? this is the first thing he said to me. Can I introduce you to my wife? He didn't say, good to meet you. He didn't say, well, where are you from, Josh? He did say all that after. He said, can I introduce you to my wife? This is her. We're here together. We like to eat here. Talked about her for a little bit before he got into me. He got into me. He talked to me. He got to know me. He knew where I was from. He asked me for my address. He sent me his book. He wrote me a note. Super duper guy. The first thing, that was like 2004. Eleven years ago, the first thing that I remember about that man, that man of God, that pastor, that Jesus Christ follower, is that he honors his wife. And I want to learn to honor my wife too. Because the Bible says that God is glorified and the world sees it when we're understanding of our wives and we honor them. Thirdly, it says... Since they are heirs with you of the grace of life. This is a neat little phrase. It's just kind of like a, a little qualifier. Here's, here's why you should have understanding and here's why you should honor them. They are heirs with you of the grace of life. Now, some people say that this is pointing to salvation in heaven and some people are saying, no, this is just the greatest blessing of life. And that the most important relationship that we have here on earth is our marriage. 
lately I found myself having good conversation with Valeria, my wife, about how awesome it is being a dad. And I found myself in conversation with her saying, no, the most important relationship to me is my wife. The relationship that I love the most is my wife. The, one that it, the, the person that I love the most is my wife. Now, we don't need to compare the two, but you know what I'm getting at. But the thing that thrills me the most is being a dad. And I've been thinking through the differences in, in, in the loving relationship to my children and how much I love being a dad, and, and yet the importance and the significance of my marriage. The Bible says a little bit about raising kids. The Bible says a whole lot about marriage. And what this is saying here is, since y'all are heirs together in the grace of life, since this relationship is so huge, understand it. Do it right. Take it in. Commit to it. Work hard at it. Some of us work so hard at other things and give about nothing to our marriage. We come to the marriage on empty. We come to the marriage on 10% of battery life. We come to the marriage with almost nothing left to give. And if you're like me, when you've got nothing left to give, you are as short-tempered as it comes. I'll admit that's how I am. When I'm tired, I just can't go anymore. I can give no energy to anything. can hardly be a husband. can hardly be loving. It's hard to walk in the door at 5 or 6 o'clock when you're exhausted and, and then give all your effort. We must be people who have understanding and husbands that want to, 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 to realize that this is my wife. There's no relationship on earth that is more important for your witness to Jesus than your marriage. Ecclesiastes 9.9 says, and this is the person that doesn't hope in God. Enjoy life with the wife of whom you love all the days of your vain life that He has given you under the sun. You ever heard people say that she's my better half? That's somebody that understands this. We're heirs together of the grace of life. I don't deserve her type of talk. Lastly, and this is profound, so that your prayers may not be hindered. The Bible says that a bad marriage, or rather a bad husband, has hindered his prayers and God is not hearing them and answering them. I want to ask you here today if perhaps you've been praying about something for a long time and God has not answered it. And yet because you haven't heard this before or read this before or haven't heard anybody preach on it before, You've never thought that perhaps the reason why God is not answering is because you're not trying to be the type of husband that God wants you to be. Do you have a prayer that you wish God would answer and yet it's hindered because of the type of husband you are? Have you been praying for your children for years and yet God's not answering those prayers because of the type of marriage that you have? We can't compartmentalize our life. And it's passages like this that bring it to the forefront. We never think about our prayers being hindered. We just complain about God not answering them. We think it's God's problem when He's not answering our prayers instead of hearing that the Bible says, no, it's our problem. It's our disobedient problem. It's our selfish problem. He does this three times here. At chapter 3, verse 7, He says that your prayers may not be hindered. At chapter 3, verses 10, 11, and 12, He says 
Whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil, his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Again, he mentions prayer and his devotion to your prayer based off how you live. And then he does it again in chapter 4, verse 7. The end of all things is at hand, therefore... Be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. I've never thought about this before this sermon, honestly. The Bible is teaching us that God hears our prayers and attended our prayers based off of the way that we live. Listen to this commentator. He says, What struck me is that all three, all three of these passages teach us not that praying helps us live right. That's what we think. But that living right helps us pray. Now, it's true that praying is one of the ways that God has appointed to help us live the way we should. But Peter's point here in every one of these three passages is that it's true the other way around. God has appointed a way for us to live which will help us pray. There are ways to live that hinder prayers. And there is a way to live that helps prayer. Outstanding. If your heart is burdened for some things and you are asking God to work, a new job, family members, this, that, finances, trouble, whatever, could it be that your marriage has totally blocked that? This is what he's saying. We are to be understanding with our wives. We are to honor her knowing that she is your gift from God. She is an heir with you of the grace of life. What a blessing so that your prayers may not be hindered. The Proverbs say, he who finds a wife finds a good thing. The old adage says, behind every good man is a better woman. Men, we ought to know this. We ought not to fall in love with her and think that she is so everything and be so sweet to her and we got the roses and the candy and all of that and we think that she's the most important thing in the world to us. And then all of a sudden, once we get in marriage and our understanding increases and decreases, both at the same time, we know her a little bit better and we understand her a little bit less, that all of a sudden we don't want to be the best thing ever to her. We make wedding vows on our wedding day and we make these big declarations that whether I'm rich or poor or whether I'm hungry or not hungry or whether I'm sick or whether I'm healthy or whether I'm better or whether I'm worse, I pledge all my love to you from this day forward, as long as we both shall live. We literally say that. And then don't care a lick about living it. And Peter brings it up because God and Jesus Christ as a Savior to sinners is represented in our marriage. We need not try to be a witness to Christ if we're not ready to try to be the best husband we can be. God has asked husbands to love their wives the way Jesus loves us. And men should be able to take a strong word from God. 
It's a quote I remind myself of a lot. But the unbelieving Gandhi from India has been quoted to say, perhaps I would have become a Christian had I not met so many of them. Perhaps people would believe in the bridegroom Jesus Christ who laid His life down for His wife, His bride. If there weren't so many people saying they believe in Him and yet don't want to put in the effort that He does. Chapter 2, verse 12 says that they may see your good deeds and glorify God. May we stop thinking a little bit less about holding doors and giving money and start thinking a little bit more about loving and serving our wives. That's our top priority. And church, if everybody in this building and everybody in this community thinks that Josh Green's a good man. And my wife and kids don't. You can hang it up. Who cares? Who cares? Because the very message that we're proclaiming is that Jesus gave Himself for our sins. And the very standard at which I preach is what I ought to give to my wife. May that be the case of all of us who claim Jesus. And may it be the witness of this church that we hold marriage high. We want our wives to be understood and honored for the glory of God. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we love you. And you often take us to a passage in Scripture that we would rather avoid. Father, I pray that here right now there's a lot of prayers going up and they're not being hindered. I pray, God, that if they have been hindered, that now the prayers are prayers of repentance. And I pray, God, for every man and woman in the room, every husband and wife in the room, that right now they would bow their hearts and their heads and they would say, Lord Jesus, have mercy on me, a sinner. Forgive me of my sins. Help me be a better husband. Help me to be a better wife. Give me Holy Spirit power, God, to dive into my marriage knowing that it's hard, knowing that there's a lack of understanding, knowing that there are years and years in the past that have built up to make it almost unbearable. So God, help me to hear the Word. And by Your grace and Your strength, be devoted to it. And Father, for everybody here today that is thinking through salvation, may they know that we have a husband in Jesus that has done it right, that has given Himself for us in love for our salvation. Father, we ask Your blessing on us now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.